1: Wherever you get your podcasts. Today's episode is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon, including our Commodore class. That's Commodore's obvious. Misfit. Sean. Lee. David. Torso and Pinches. Matt. Hangman Strain. Sir Rancid Cheese. Shelby. Andrew, Axios, Richard, Hartman, Skipper, the Sextant, Brian, Cap'n Crunch, Roger the Jolly, Vibran, Artemis Killmeister, Carcos Rotary Coast, M.D., Lost Again the Navigator, Vassios, Doc Lindsay, Pitlock, Ward, Workman, Chairboat gunsway sally cannon monkey rum runner madam anita sparrow hefe bull verdigon rumgut and bootstrap Bailey. Hello. Welcome to the Pirate History Podcast. My name is Matt. Thank you for listening. The other day, one of our listeners, Jocelyn, sent me a link to a thread on Reddit. The premise was a question. If you were to wake up tomorrow and find yourself a pirate in 1750, what would you do? And of course, that's the kind of thing I'm going to check out, but it took a fairly momentous feat of will. Not to be the, well, actually guy, all throughout. The top comment, when I saw it anyway, just said one word. Plunder. And that's hard to argue with. But everything else, well, virtually every answer was just a fast track to death. But there was one, buried deep down in the comment section, that stuck out to me as the right answer. The best right answer. After, you know, plunder. They said they would write a book. I've said it before, and I'll say it again. I'll be saying this until my dying day. If you find yourself doing something awesome, write a book about it. Keep a journal about it. You never know who, in the future, just might want to read it. Of course, we might be living in the first time in human history when this advice is kind of useless. You know, in this age of social media, we can say where someone was two years ago on a Tuesday. But I still think that for the big things, for the important things, and of course for the smaller, much more personal, private things, a journal or a book is second to none. And even if that's changed now, which I don't think it has, but even if I'm wrong, that has been the case for the whole of human history. And I would argue that it was never more the case than round about the year 1700 with the explosion in mostly affordable printing presses, which of course coincided with the rise of the middle class and basic literacy. Printing was big business in 1700, but it was also a kind of a strange business, at least to our modern eyes. If you were to look for publishing houses in London, circa 1700, you'd be about a century too early. Instead of publishing houses, which, you know, are kind of a modern concept, you'd find a lot of printing houses. Businesses that had the printing presses and all of the requisite materials, but also the craftsmen to work those presses properly. But these printing houses weren't content generators. They printed work for a fee. And if you had the money, you could get your book published at any printing house in England. But it was a lot of money. If you did not have the funds to do so, but you had a book that you wanted to publish, you had to shop your manuscript around to wealthy patrons. And there were some books that were absolutely going to find a patron. If you had a book of poetry or steamy romance, you could almost always find someone to fund that project, if it was any good anyway. Because poetry and steamy romance were almost always sure to sell. Usually, these books would sell mostly to women women were a heretofore mostly untapped but suddenly exploding market for books. You know, you can go back a couple of centuries and picture a nobleman's wife in her solarium, gasping at the exploits of dashing heroes and comely maidens, and you can even maybe picture their daughter creeping into the study with a guarded candle in her hand to sneak a peek at some of the tales of romance and passionate love affairs. And that's how things had been for centuries. You know, the very upper echelons of society could usually read, including often the women. That's why we so often find things like the Arthurian legends and the French chivalric tales filled with blushing young princesses, being rescued from the clutches of, you know, whatever, by handsome young knights. But by 1700, that really wasn't how things worked anymore. That explosion in the middle class means that all of the wives of those middle class merchants, and even some of the ladies' maids, were learning how to read. And for a while, those books of poetry and romance dominated the windows and storefronts of booksellers around England. But it soon became clear that these books were almost always outsold, hand over fist, by stories of adventure, even among the women of England. Just like those old Arthurian legends, there would be escapades led by men of valor and dashing and daring do... Only these now were globe-trotting escapades, and the men weren't riding atop prancing steeds, they were riding mighty warships. By 1700, this was the biggest publishing market in the world. Naturally, it wasn't just the women and girls that were doing the reading. All of these stories were selling well with men and boys, too. And much like those old Arthurian tales, They were learning to blend the adventure with the romance, but now, instead of the blushing, demure maidens, these stories were getting quite a bit more risque. That's why we find so many stories that detail the topless island girls who were so eager to greet the English who came calling. But a good story can't be all sex and sword fights. Every good story needs a hero. And in this new age of globe-trotting adventure on the back of a warship, the captain usually fit the bill. An officer, a gentleman, but hopefully for a good story, someone young and dashing and handsome. That would do just perfectly. This is episode 305, The Admiral Binbow, part two. We devoted a whole episode to John Benbow's early career, and today we're going to pick up where that story left off. But first, I'd like to check in on our old friend, William Dampier. Dampier was not writing poetry or steamy romance, and really, he didn't even want to write adventure stories. He was writing technical manuals about winds and tides, and the market for books like that did not seem quite as strong. It was, of course, a hit with other naturalists and early Enlightenment scientists, and Dampier did shop his book all around the Royal Society of London. But it wasn't until 1696 that Dampier found a patron to pay for a mass market release. However, this patron had some stipulations to ensure that his investment paid off. Dampier was to edit. His book quite a bit. Those journals were filled with scientific findings, which is great, but they don't sell. The product of these extensive edits is the A New Voyage Round the World that we all know and love. It was a book that really took the publishing world by storm. It had a fair amount of winds and tides and flora and fauna, but it had a lot more pirates and adventure and danger and blood and sex and discovery people loved it it sold so well in fact that dampier was able to publish even more books from his compiled journals now a little while back a listener named colette got in touch to ask me about the books dampier published that detailed his scientific and navigational findings and colette what you're looking for are the sequels to a new voyage round the world First, there's Supplement of the Voyage Round the World, but more directly, I think, for what you're looking for, there are two books, A Discourse of Winds and William Dampier's Atlas. Now, none of these books sold quite as well as A New Voyage Round the World, but England was kind of gripped by this atmosphere of the scientific revolution, a culture that reveled in the joys of exploration and discovery. So these sequels sold, while not as well, almost as well, and certainly well enough to justify the investment. This was something of a shock to the publishing market. The Royal Society of London realized that books about, you know, science, generally a dry topic, that they could, if presented in the right fashion, sell pretty well. And they wanted in on some of that uh, middle-class consumer money. And this brings us back to John Benbow and the voyage of Edmund Haley. We're still about three years away from Haley's publication of his findings surrounding a certain comet, what would go on to be known as Haley's Comet. But Edmund Haley was pretty awesome already. Primarily, he was an astronomer, but he was a real renaissance man. You know, he was friends with Isaac Newton, or as close to friends as Isaac Newton had, anyway. He was also friends with Peter the Great, the emperor of Russia. He was a relatively dapper and well-spoken academic, so he went to all the right parties. He was also quite the inventor. I think probably my favorite of his inventions were his additions to the diving bell. And we all know what the diving bell is, right? It's a Big bronze bell that's lowered into the ocean from a ship and then holds a pocket of oxygen inside that divers can use to breathe. One of Haley's additions to the diving bell was a window so that you could actually get inside the bell itself and look at what was happening outside. He also added these barrels that were dropped with the diving bell that held additional oxygen If you've ever played Assassin's Creed IV, Black Flag, and I know that many of you have, I know what you're picturing right now. And yeah, those diving missions were actually pretty historically accurate, at least as far as the bell itself was concerned. Haley's main field of study were the magnetic fields of celestial bodies, including the Earth and he believed that his research into the Earth's gravity and magnetism could help him solve the problem of calculating longitude. By 1700, they really still hadn't figured out how to measure longitude with anything resembling precision. But Haley had some ideas on how to solve that problem. First, though, he needed to get on a ship and collect some data. And this brings us to England's very first voyage, specifically for the purpose of scientific discovery. It was a big deal, and it's surprising how well it was funded by those in England who were gripped by this culture of discovery and exploration. But Halley's first couple of attempts went really badly. His big problem, that he ran into twice, were the pirates. See, Haley needed to get down to the South Atlantic, sailing down the west coast of Africa. Once he got down there, there would be plenty of English and Dutch ships around to ensure that he was safe, but getting there was... Well, the Barbary pirates out of Saleh were still as dangerous as they had ever been, and they were happy to prey on any unarmed vessels that strayed past their bases along the coast of Africa. Unarmed vessels like this ship solely intended for scientific discovery. Haley managed to avoid capture, but he had to turn around and come back to England twice. The third time, Haley had some
0: help. Find The Age of Napoleon wherever you get your podcasts. Everybody, shush! William Shatner has something to say. Cat and Jethro, box of oddities. What do you
1: do when the woman you love dies? There were a lot of men on the admiralty board that had a financial interest in Haley's voyage, so they assigned Rear Admiral John Binbow to accompany Haley and his ship past the pirate-infested waters of northern Africa. And John Binbow was, by this point, more than well-equipped for the job. Binbow was a national hero. By 1700, his exploits and victories during the Nine Years' War had won him fame and prestige, as well as money and power. Binbo was recognized as England's most dashing, brave, aggressive, and ruthless naval commander. There were other officers, occasionally officers who were his direct superiors, that tended to wait for the right moment but John Binbo was a man who sailed out and created the right moment. His greatest feat to date was the bombardment of Granville in Normandy. Binbo commanded a squadron of eight frigates and eight bombships. A bombship was a relatively small vessel with a few defensive guns, but not intended for cannon fire. Instead, a bombship had a very large mortar, on the deck, a mortar that could fire a great distance and hit static targets with precision and do a lot of damage. Benbow bombarded Granville for hours, technically against the orders of his commanding officer, but eventually the city conceded, mainly because by this point it was a heap of burning rubble. This was a huge naval victory for England during the war, and it made Benbow even more famous. After the victory, John Benbow got a promotion. In the summer of 1698, Benbow was made Rear Admiral of the Red and given command of His Majesty's West Indian Fleet. Now, let's take just a second to talk about English naval fleet squadrons and their respective color designations. Every fleet had three squadrons, denoted by color. There was blue white, and red, the colors of the king's jack. Each squadron had three admirals. In order from the lowest ranking to the highest ranking, there was the rear admiral, the vice admiral, and then the admiral. But each of the squadrons, red, blue, or white, had their own rank. The blue squadron was the lowest, the white was in the middle, and the red was the highest-ranking squadron. A rear admiral of the blue would be outranked by a rear admiral of the white, who would then be outranked by a rear admiral of the red. Then would come the vice admirals, blue, white, red, and the admiral admirals, blue, white, red, and the red admiral was the admiral of the fleet. John Benbow Rear Admiral of the Blue was promoted two ranks to Rear Admiral of the Red, one step below a Vice Admiral. It was a big promotion. It came with a lot of perks, but it also came with a lot of responsibility. In his case, commanding the West Indies fleet. The Royal Navy needed a fighting man in the West Indies, someone who wasn't afraid of a few pirates, because his job, officially, his orders were to hunt pirates. At least that's what his orders said. And you know, yeah, if he happened to cross any pirates, sure, he could deal with them, but let's be honest. How bad was the pirate menace in the West Indies in 1699? You know, we haven't properly spent any time in the Caribbean in a long while. All the real pirate activity was concentrated in the east, around Madagascar. There were, of course, the French privateers out of Saint-Domingue, and Benbow would keep his eyes on those characters, but there just weren't too many real pirates operating in the West Indies, especially not English pirates. The only English pirates of any note at all were that ragtag bunch of smugglers and rum runners operating out of New Providence Island up in the Bahamas, and they weren't. Well, they really weren't much to write home about. So the question is, why was an English admiral leading a powerful fleet to the West Indies in peacetime? That was a question that everyone was going to be asking, especially Spain and France. But hunting pirates was an excuse that no one could ignore and no one could deny. Pirates were a menace, a real problem, and a powerful English fleet might just be able to deal with them, Remember, right now, England was still reeling from Henry Every, and all of the Captain Kidd drama was happening at this moment. No one could fault England for sending a fleet to deal with pirates, even if everybody actually knew that England was not there to deal with pirates. Everyone knew that England was lying, and England knew that everyone knew that they were lying, but no one could say anything because you know pirates were such a big deal john binbow's real job his unspoken orders were reconnaissance he was to keep tabs on the spanish and the french in the west indies and especially their naval forces sam willis writes in the admiral binbow "the government's response was insightful" Aware that the Caribbean would be an important part of any future war with France or Spain, and that the English position could only be maintained by force, and not through diplomacy and negotiation, it decided to send a man to the Caribbean on a fact-finding and intelligence mission to test the tenor of support among the Spanish colonies, to examine defenses of all nations, and to improve navigational knowledge of key areas. This was all to be done as subtly as possible, and the publicized aim of the expedition was to be something entirely different, though plausible, the suppression of piracy. The man they chose to lead the mission was Binbo. End quote. Part of the reason that the appointment to the West Indies fleet was such a big deal for John Binbo was the level of autonomy that the West Indies fleet granted him. You know, a squadron closer to home, even in a place like the Mediterranean, would be sending groups of ships back to London on a regular basis. Those ships would give reports to the Admiralty, they would receive orders from the Admiralty, they would collect recruits to restock, and they would buy supplies for the fleet. Then they would return to their commander, and in a couple weeks' time, another unit would go out with the same mission— but a fleet in the West Indies was cut off from the home waters for months at a time. The commander-in-chief of the West Indies squadron was expected to make good decisions since he was not going to be getting orders from home. He also would find himself without a whole lot of support unless he managed to ingratiate himself with the governors, the English governors of the Caribbean colonies, and they found themselves with almost as much autonomy as the fleet commander. If you wanted to do well in the Caribbean, you had to make good with the governors. To that end, John Benbow immediately pissed off the governor of Jamaica, William Beeston. You may remember William Beeston as kind of an antagonist against whom Henry Morgan struggled in his political career. Beeston was all about law and order, and really didn't have time for dashing heroics. He especially hated buccaneers. Beeston was actually the lieutenant governor of Jamaica, but this was that era in which the actual governors of Jamaica never even visited the island. They all lived up in Carolina, or more often, in England. The lieutenant governor was the man on the scene doing all the real work and Beeston, to his credit, did a lot of real work. He oversaw the rebuilding of Port Royal after the 1692 earthquake destroyed it, and he oversaw the establishment of Kingston. It was Beeston that led Jamaica, and thus really kind of the whole of the English West Indies, he led them through the Nine Years' War. That's when Lauro de Graf and the buccaneers out of Tortuga were waging war on the English. It was Beeston that proved to be their arch-rival. And, you know, just to kind of catch us all up with our overall narrative here, Binbo arrived in the West Indies just about at the same time that Lauro de Graf and his wife, and Eulavu, were reportedly spotted in the French colony of Louisiana, reportedly helping to found Biloxi in modern-day Mississippi. After the Nine Years' War was over, though, William Beeston forged a tense working relationship with the governor of Saint-Domingue, Jean-Baptiste Ducasse. They weren't friends, certainly, but they were at peace and they decided to work together. And then, all of a sudden, literally out of the blue, this huge English fleet shows up and disrupts the balance of power in the West Indies completely. Now, you might expect an English governor to be happy about a large English fleet coming to, you know, back him up, but Beeston really wasn't. The balance of power was a tenuous thing in the West Indies, and this put his relationship with Saint-Domingue in serious peril. John Benbow threatened to reopen hostilities just by showing up. So, when John Benbow showed up in Port Royal to pay his respects to Governor Beeston, he met a chilly response. This was something that Benbow did not expect because Benbow was. John Benbow, English national hero, newly promoted and due some respect. So instead of ingratiating himself with William Beeston, John Binbow began to lord his position and his fame over the governor of Jamaica. He was basically giving Beeston orders, which he did not have the authority to do. Then, Binbow informed the governor that he was going to be leaving half his ships at Port Royal. They would stay there in Jamaica, you know, for protection, obviously. But in reality, Binbo was leaving behind several hundred disgruntled sailors who had been press-ganged into service who wanted nothing more than to find a little rum, find a fight, and find a woman. And they did not care if that woman was willing or not. They were a real problem for Port Royal. And then Binbo just kind of left. How would you feel if someone came to your city and dropped off 500 men who had been kidnapped from their home and just kind of left them there? No money, nowhere to live, no one to take care of them. Now they're your problem. So Beeston wrote to London complaining about this rascal, Binbo, who was getting up to God knows what kind of trouble out there on the blue. Beeston postulated all kinds of nefarious deeds which Admiral Benbow might have in mind, but he left off saying that he was totally in the dark about Benbow's intentions. Leave it to your imagination. The Admiralty, though, was fully aware of what Benbow was up to, because, you know, he wrote his own letter to London that arrived at the same time as Beeston's. And that letter detailed John Binbo's grand plans to do exactly the wrong thing. See, the big news in the West Indies, the news on every English tongue, was the new Scottish colony in Darien, christened New Caledonia. New Caledonia was having troubles. Here in 1700, their biggest problem was the seizure of two ships filled with supplies that were currently being held at the Spanish port at Cartagena. The Scottish colonists of New Caledonia were probably going to starve to death because those ships were being held captive by Spain. Now, Benbow learned of this first when he arrived in the West Indies. It seemed to him to be a dire situation, so as soon as he dropped off those ships and his 500 weakest men, he sailed off to Cartagena to confront the Spanish. His 60-gun flagship, the 4th-rate HMS Gloucester, led the fleet into Cartagena's water, and Benbow threatened a blockade and a bombardment. And from Admiral John Benbow, this was not an idle threat. He was the man that had delivered Granville in the Nine Years' War. The only way to avoid that fate would be to release those two Scottish ships. The Cartagenan authorities, not wanting to have their city razed to the ground, relented. They released those supply ships and allowed them to sail on to New Caledonia. The Scottish settlers were saved, and New Caledonia was allowed to limp on for a while longer. Now, Binbo, this seems admirable, right? You know, Binbo was just showing a bit of British solidarity here. Scotland and England shared the same king, after all, so why not give his brothers a helping hand? But back in London, the Admiralty learned of Binbo's plan to save those two ships and the Scottish colony at Darien, and they freaked out. This was exactly what they did not want Binbo to do. They really wanted to see. The colony at New Caledonia fail miserably. And it wasn't just the Admiralty. This desire to see New Caledonia fail reached the highest echelons of power. There were big plans in the works for the unification of England and Scotland. But if Scotland managed to get a profitable colonial holding in the Americas, unification was unlikely. So the government was furious with Benbow. But they couldn't be too furious, because when Binbo departed for the Americas, they didn't even know that New Caledonia had been established yet. He got there, did what he did, and they learned of it, but they had had no chance to get him orders about New Caledonia. So, you know, he couldn't be said to be defying them, just making the wrong decisions. Binbo's fleet sailed away from Cartagena to do some reconnaissance along the Spanish main, and to, you know, patrol for pirates along the Mosquito Coast or wherever else they might find them. But there really wasn't much to write home about. I'm sure, though, that it's a total coincidence, a coincidence that has nothing to do with the animosity from Governor Beeston or the fury of his superiors in London, that when Binbo returned to Jamaica he decided it was a good idea to leave the West Indies for a while. Binbo took his fleet and sailed up the east coast of North America, patrolling for pirates the whole way. He actually did find a few, though no one worth mentioning, mostly just a few small-time French brigands up in Newfoundland. He arrested them, commandeered their ships, and then returned to Boston. And when he got to Boston he found orders waiting for him telling john binbo and his fleet to return home but this was not a reprimand binbo wasn't in trouble he wasn't fired no he was ordered back to the home waters with the utmost haste because everyone was now painfully aware that another war was about to break out and binbo's fleet was needed to guard england i'd like to thank everybody for listening i'd like to thank everybody who helps to support this show everybody who has left us ratings or reviews everybody who has recommended this show and all of our supporters on patreon without all of you this wouldn't be possible so thank you our theme music was as always the old captain by the fantastic band brillig If you haven't checked them out yet, you absolutely should do so. You can find them at brillig.com.au. That's B-R-I-L-L-I-G.com.au. After you're done over there, why not check out our website at piratehistorypodcast.com. The Pirate History Podcast is a member of the Airwave Media Podcast Network. If you'd like to check out some of their other fine shows, like The Sit-Down, a Mafia History Podcast, you can do so at airwavemedia.com. As always, and most importantly, thank you for listening.